So welcome all of you um, for this term second OTJR seminar series talk. This talk forms part of the wider ESRC knowledge exchange project on ways of knowing atrocity, methods used to formulate, assess and implement traditional justice processes. This project is run by Oxford University, King's College and the Swiss, Swiss Peace and um, Swiss NGO. And um, I'm very delighted today to welcome Lorena Balladini, um, who will be talking about measuring criminal accountability for past human rights violations in the South Corn, databases on judicial activity in Argentina, Chile, and Peru. Okay. Well, thank you, Julia, for inviting me to co-chair. It's a pleasure to be here and to welcome Lorena here in, in Oxford. And just to give you a bit of background on Lorena, Lorena is a sociologist, and she's also an assistant professor of research methodology and a PhD candidate in social sciences at the University of Buenos Aires in Argentina. She's also the coordinator of the research area for Argentine Human Rights NGO, CELS, the Center for Legal and Social Studies. Lorena has designed several databases for CELS that map and measure the human rights trials that have been ongoing in Argentina. She's also consulted and transferred the database design and methodology to other institutions in Uruguay, Chile, and Peru. Her publications include an article entitled Mapping Perpetrator Prosecutions in Latin America that she co-authored with Jo Marie Berth and Kath Collins, which you can read in the International Journal of Transitional Justice. So it's a great pleasure to have Lorena here, and we look forward to your talk. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation and all of you for being here. Just a bit of patience because I'm a Spanish speaker, so I will probably commit uh, lots of mistakes with my English, but well, I, I, I'll do my best uh, to try to explain the project I lead in uh, for Buenos Aires NGO cells. Well, <clears throat> now the technology is set up, I can, I can start by um, telling you about this project that I have, well, actually designed and coordinated for, for sales uh, since since its very beginning. Um, since I, we have a lot, of, uh, we have some time for you to understand some context. So before getting into the project, the mapping project, the databases, and all the methodological aspects of the project, uh, I would like to just refer briefly to the context of uh, in which, in the political context, actually, that this project started. Um, so I'm not going to, to tell you the, the history of the human rights process in Argentina because I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's quite long and uh, with a lot of back and forwards in, in its um, prosecution of uh, accountability. But I just want you to understand that we have a first moment during the, uh, the transition to democracy where there were some interesting mechanisms related to uh, accountability for the past crimes, the crimes that the dictatorship had committed, had committed between 1976 and 1983. And just after this brief two or three years of, of accountability mechanisms, 
1987, there were Section 2 amnesty laws that unfortunately started what we call the impunity times. There was uh, absolutely no way or, well, there was a, a tiny loophole in the amnesty laws that allowed the, the prosecution of children abduction. But the rest of the crimes committed by the, by the military was out of any possible criminal prosecutions. So after many years of what, what we call impunity, the, uh, and during which especially human rights organizations never stop looking for accountability in all sorts of ways, not only criminal accountability, um, we reached a moment in the, after, we may say, 1998 and the detention of Pinochet in, in London, uh, there were several milestones in the international arena. I don't know, Judge Garçon, uh, prosecution of many, many perpetrators from Argentina, the Silingo case uh, in Spain, that led to eventually the possibility of um, uh, dismantling the, the amnesty laws. And I put the Poblete claim there in, in the year 2000 because that's the case that actually removed all the, the obstacles that were imposed to uh, criminal prosecution. Th that was a case, I, I'm just going to refer to it very briefly because it's a case that sells the organization I belong to, together with grandmothers of Plaza de Mayo, Las Abuelas. They together made that claim in order to dismantle amnesty. And that's the famous case in the framework of which the Supreme Court declared the amnesty laws unconstitutional. So this is just for you to know that from the year 2000, around between 2000 and 2005, that is the Supreme Court um, ruling in that case, we managed to dismantle amnesty. So we were able to prosecute the military again for these crimes. Not twice, again, because twice is a complicated thing in, in, in law language. Okay. So that's the context for you to understand how and why this project emerged. And I, want, I wanted to give you some information on these trials, because when we say trials, we perhaps we think that everybody knows what we're talking about, but sometimes uh, it, it's better to give you some idea of what we are doing. These cases are domestic. So uh, they are basically carried on by the what we call the federal, well, the national judiciary. And, uh, well, it's a mixed criminal procedure, which is really interesting because it has a part that is written. This is important for, for what I'm going to tell you later, how we measure that procedure. It has a first part that is a written and secret procedure. And then you have what we call the oral hearings, the oral, the open to society part of the trials, which is actually really, really interesting and different from other cases, the Uruguay case, the Chilean case. We basically have two main accusatory parties, the public prosecutor, which depends of the general attorney's office, representing state, of course, and the private prosecutors. In Argentina, we as NGOs 
we can represent victims uh, to, in order to prosecute the military who, well, committed the crimes against them. Basically, we represent survivors of the dictatorship, but also relatives of the disappeared and the murdered by the, by the military. So the organization I belong to actually was born during the dictatorship in order to give legal advice to the families of the disappeared. So in the new process, in the current process of justice, we still have that, that role as private prosecutors. Of course, the military have a defense, public or private, so we have a public ministry of defense that is in charge of uh, defending the military, but some of them prefer their own lawyers, which are, they have a syntony, an ideologic, ideological syntony, so they feel more comfortable with, with their own, of course, some of them can pay for private lawyers. And um, this is interesting, the defendants, at first, it used to be on the military or members of the security forces, but now, eventually, we are managing to uh, prosecute civilians for their roles uh, during the, the repression. When I, when I mean civilians, I mean from members of the Catholic Church, judges or prosecutors, but also businessmen. For example, di directors of companies that had something, had a role in the, in the repressions. And when there are other important actors, but I think that perhaps we can move on. This is a courtroom. I wanted to show that to you because sometimes when we speak about the trials, um, perhaps you imagine like a Hollywood film, or the judge with the hammer, and I don't know. We don't have a jury, for example. This is, these are the defendants of the ESMA trial. I don't know if you're familiar with the Argentinian case, but all of them, were members of uh, a task group that that used to work within the army, a, a school from the army, and there they were all prosecuted by for torture, kidnapping, and murder of victims that were held captive in that in that in a clandestine detention center that worked within the school. Well. At the back, there's the, the audience, because I told you before, these trials have a part that is oral, public, people can attend that, that hearings if they want. And we can do a Waldo search here. I, I'm in the public. I don't know if some, someone can see me. But I'm in the public doing like this, trying to, to, to see something, because it's very difficult to see when you are in the back. So perhaps you know this is Alfredo Stis, it's a very famous militant. And just a bit, remember this picture? Well, we are, to, we are going to talk about the, how complex these trials are, how many defendants they have. All of these are defendants with their own lawyers. In this trial, there were 19, 19 defendants, each one with a lawyer or sharing a lawyer. If the picture would continue here, there would be the private prosecutors cells and other NGOs, and the public prosecutors will be in the front, and here will be the judges, three judges, okay? Well, let's put us in the moment when the, these trials begin. Of course, we were really excited 
because we had the opportunity to give justice to the victims. The state was, again, trying to accomplish the goal of accountability for, um, well, rebuild itself and fulfill the rule of law. But of course, uh, well, as any process, any complex process, it showed some problems from the very beginning. So, well, we at SALS, we represented victims, but we also, we have always done um, a very strong advocacy work together with the litigation and the research strategies. We believe that um, these trials are a way of changing the way the state handles with its responsibilities. It's not just going to the courtroom, it's making some change. So. When this started, we, 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 we saw that there were many problems that this, uh, this process was, was facing. And this, these are just some of them um, that I'm going to, to explain uh, very, very briefly for us to get to these. We're going to, to get to the point that there was no information on what was going on with the process at all. And that's the moment we dive in with our project. So well, this, this was very hard. At the very beginning, there was, not, there was not a risk assessment of what could happen to a witness or to a, even to a defendant in the framework of the trials. At the very beginning of the process, there were many threats and acts of violence against, against actors in general, victims, but also lawyers, prosecutors. Well, um, we identified two milestones in, in, this, in this quite severe problem that the, the process had at the beginning. One was the disappearance of a witness. Julio Lopez was his name. He, 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 he disappeared during the, the dictatorship, and he disappeared again after being witnessed in one of the trials. And that one, Hector Febres, he was a defendant in the, he should be seated in that courtroom that I, they sh that I showed to you, but he died while he was, uh, he was detained in a, like a um, privileged cell, VIP cell uh, that belonged to his own force. And he, well, we don't know if he, he was murdered or his suicide, but it, it showed he appeared dead in his cell. So it was a very confusing episode that, well, of course everybody was really shocked about that and really, well, uh, nervous about what could happen with, with the process. So at the beginning of the process, we didn't know if there was risk enough to prevent and stop the trials and never, never do a trial again to, to preserve the lives of the actors at the very beginning. Another problem we have is that, well, each judge was organizing its cases in a different way. There was not, like, there was not a line from the Supreme Court or uh, there was not a prosecutorial strategy at all. It's like each judge was the owner of his, case, of his or her cases and he or she did whatever she wanted uh, organizing them. The main problem about that is that we started to have a phenomenon that I don't know if the translation is good. 
we call it trickle down prosecution. It's like when you open, um, how do you say that? You open a tab and it clicks. Well, that's, that's the kind of the idea, the picture of what I want to say. Imagine the repression in Argentina. Imagine that for each clandestine by each clandestine detention center, there were, I don't know, thousands of victims. Well, each judge took each case of a victim and by each victim made one file. So he investigated your disappearance, your murder. Well, you used to be together in the same clandestine detention center. He didn't care because he had the logical, the logic of the criminal prosecution in Argentina, perhaps a victim for a murder or whatever crime, it's a case. No. So what was the consequence of that? You didn't have idea of the systematicity because you, you could not connect a crime with the other. And the other consequence is that there were <coughs> a lot of repetition of the testimonies. Because, for example, I, had, I was held captive with you and you. So the one judge, or the judge called me to give testimony for your disappearance. And I go there. And I'm a survivor. I'm a victim. I have to talk about you. Three months later, when he starts re doing research for her murder, he summoned me again. So I have to go again and talk about her. And perhaps never talk about myself. That's what used to happen at the beginning of the trials. This was also, well, there was very poor coordination between actors. Perhaps the judge summoned me and the prosecutor too, and I don't know, the private prosecutor that I was in, in touch with uh, was very mad because nobody called him. Well, there was very poor coordination between all the actors I mentioned were part of the process. And I don't know if it's a consequence of the other two, but there were many excessive delays at the beginning of the process. There were many courts that were trying to stop the trials in the way they could, and they used to, for example, delay an appeal for three years. That was really hard at the beginning. Many judges didn't want to act in these cases, so they, they excused themselves. And for the process of natural judge in Argentina, you have to do a, like a lottery in order to designate a new judge. And that took a lot of time. I mean, there were basically three or four years of delay at the beginning of the, of the process. Well, we're getting to our, to our project now. So the other were more like prosecutorial uh, <coughs> problems, but basically there was a huge problem is that we didn't have any information of what was going on. Something basic, a journalist called, I don't know, he said, oh, we, hear, we heard that there are trials in Argentina, please let us know how many trials are there, where, who is being uh, summoned, who, who are the defendants, anybody know? Not just us as NGO, the state couldn't say how many trials were opened all over the country. So we, we didn't have an idea, we couldn't dimension what was going on with this. It could be a very small phenomenon, something, I don't know, 
a priori team, want to say the city, but perhaps in Tucumán nothing was happening. Well, we didn't know that. We couldn't know that at all because, because the state was not well, uh, creating information about its own process. So at some point we started to think that it was a very important process that justified doing some analysis at least. But, uh, well, we, we understood that there was not any state policy about producing data, data on the process. So that's why we decided to create our own database on, uh, just to at least try to analyze some patterns, some trajectories, and to really see what, what was going on with these trials. So um, in 2007, this is quite anecdotic, but I was, I just graduated from sociology the year before. I was working for cells in another database, the database on, uh, I think it's uh, police violence. And well, they, they started to think that they needed to map this, this process and that if the state was not going to do, not, to do something about it, well, as usual, NGOs and Argentina human rights organizations would uh, tend to, to take the globe. I don't know if it's the same expression in English. So well, SELS uh, hired me at that time, I used to be an intern, and I was very I specialized in methodology and statistics, basically. So they hired me to build this database, and I was like, "Oh my God, how am I going to build a database to measure a process that is national?" And it's impossible. I cannot do that. Yes, you can. You can. So well, I did my best, and I worked for a year to try to design what I'm going to show you. And of course, from that moment, we improved a lot. But well, at that moment, it was a challenge for me because I was very young. <laughs> <coughs> OK, so well, um, for you to understand um, how this project is connecting to our organization's work, at SELS, we always try to combine research and practice imperatives. It's like we. We are not a research uh, um, like institution, but we are also not only just a, an activist NGO, a practitioner NGO. We try to combine. Sometimes it's difficult, and we are we have more success in in some cases than in others. But we are trying always to combine research with uh, with practice uh, in our work. We wanted to also to to create some to produce some information to give some insights of what was going on in Argentina nationally and internationally. There was a lot of public interest on, on what was going on, uh, and of course we wanted to uh, track the developments and also see the obstacles because. As I mentioned earlier, there were many problems, and we thought that we needed some information in order to see what we could do about the, the project. I'm going to enter the project later, but first, I'd like to tell you, since we are speaking about the context, that at that moment, we started transferring our methodology to other other processes in Latin America that were also involved in domestic prosecution. So a year after our database was uh, was done, in 2009, we transferred the methodology to uh, Diego Portales University in Chile. 
I'm not going to get into each country context because it's going to be too long, but just for you to know, after the, the detention of Pinochet, there was like, there had always been a process of justice in Chile, but the process reactivated after this uh, detention. And there was, a, there was a, a state agency, the Human Rights Program, that was actually producing data on the cases. It handled, basically, it was uh, the disappearance and, and the murder victims from Chile, but the data was not, not public. They produced that data just for internal use. So the, the team from the La Universidad de Portales, they were really really uh, worried about arousing public interest on the trials. And without that information, they thought that that would be impossible. So they also they shared with us the intention of tracking and mapping and, and measuring the process. And we started doing that in 2009. The same happened in Peru and in Uruguay. After the Fujimori trial in Peru, uh, there was what the, well, George Mason University had a project, a lead researcher who was working, had been working in Peru for like 20 years, and it worked together with the Instituto de Defensa Legal, the Legal Defense Institute, another NGO from Peru. So they, well, they decided um, to, to do the same, to track and measure what was going on with the prosecutions after, Pinochet, after Fujimori's trial. So in 2010, we transferred the methodology to, to Peru. And Uruguay, I'm not going to go deep in Uruguay since we have the expert here, Francesca. So just the, the origin of the database, we, uh, well, after the Hellman ruling from the uh, <coughs> Inter-American Human Rights Commission and, well, the nullity of the Carusida, all that provoked like some internal movement regarding the lack of commitment of the state with the prosecution. So in 2011, all the human rights organizations formed an observatory. It's called the Observatory uh, Lucy Barburo Observatory, who was the mother of the victim. And well, we gave advice to them in terms of to also of monitoring and following the, the the criminal prosecutions in Uruguay, which are facing many problems. Now we are entering to the methodological part of my presentation. I hope I'm not giving you too much information, but I think that's important. This is, this is a, a table that I stole from the article we, we wrote with Kat Collins and, and John Murray Work because I think it's really graphic. Uruguay is missing here because when we wrote this article, the database in Uruguay was not what not, what not, not make it. So well, I'm going to focus more on sales database because that's the one I created and the one I handle. But you can have an idea of all the projects. We basically have three databases. I'm going to show them the, in, in a minute for you to see it directly because I think it, even though I know that database, databases are not to look at, because they are not very nice to I think that it can give you an idea of what we are measuring. So we have basically three databases. One is uh, organized by any active case in Argentina. I'm going to tell you what, what the active cases are about. 
The other is organized by perpetrator, but perpetrator that is formally charged in the prosecutions, not any perpetrator that, I don't know, appears in a list from a document, from a historical document. And the third one is, uh, how would you say census in English? Census? It's a census, actually, because we, we created a database with all the, all the perpetrators who had been convicted in order to map the crimes, the length of the sentence, and the level of responsibility, something very, very specific. And the sources for these databases uh, are cross-referenced. That's very, very important when you are creating a database to map a local, local and direct process, you need to cross-reference your sources. It's impossible to rely only in a source of information. So we cross uh, the press reports with our own information since we are litigators in the cases. <coughs> Other NGO information, the verdicts directly, the rulings, that some of them are, pu um, are public and you can find them in the internet. Some of them we managed to get them from a, a network of prosecutors and judges with whom we worked. And uh, we basically check, check and cross-check every single information that, that we obtain because, well, sometimes it can be really confusing. Good. And now, going to the variables. I, I really wanted to share with you what we are mapping and why we are doing that. So for that, I'm going to skip this chart that I put there just in case I couldn't open the database. But now, now that I can, ha that I can open my databases, wow. Sorry, it looks awful, but I'm going to... Okay. Well, as I said before, of course, a database is not to look at, but I thought it, would, it could be very more interesting to show the database instead of just the numbers. Um, this is basic SPSS. It's not, some, it's not something built really techno technologically. But what we... Uh, I wanted to tell you something about how we build this uh, specific database. This is the mother of the database. This was the first one. And why it was the first one? Because human rights organizations used to have a tradition on um, documenting who the perpetrator was, especially after Conadev. Why? Because, of course, Conadev has uh, a very important amount of information on the victims, and it also gathered information on the perpetrators, but that information was not published or public. So the human rights organizations decided to focus on who were the responsible for the crimes, since uh, the, the state truth was not handling uh, the, the part of the perpetrators. And they started to build lots of lists and dossier 
with the name of the perpetrator and the force he belonged to and which um, role he had in the repression. And they built lists and lists and lists and published them and put them available for all, all to see who, who were the, per the perpetrators that were responsible for the crimes. So this is a heritage of this way of the, the, the this work the human rights organizations did. So first, we started mapping who were the defendants in the cases. Even before thinking about the cases, we were very worried about who were them, who were those who were being prosecuted. So we organized our our records. At first, this, this was just an Excel spreadsheet. And we organized them by the perpetrator. So each one of these is a perpetrator. And as you will see later in the charts, we have more than 2,000 perpetrators in our database. These are people who are currently involved in a trial or have been and died, in, died afterwards. What do we record about the perpetrators? Of course, well, some data on who they were, the last name, the surname. Sorry, it's in Spanish. I'm going to translate everywhere. We also record the force they belong to. So here you can see all the uh, different armed forces and security forces that existed at the moment of the, of the, of the military dictatorship. In Argentina, we have the national forces, of course the Navy, the Army, the, uh, the Air Force, but we also have uh, some um, security forces that acted in uh, the different jurisdictions of our countries that are called provinces. So we also record which province do the police officers or the um, penitentiary service uh, officers belong to. We wanted to know if the if the prosecutions were focusing on the high, medium, or low ranks. That, that has something to do with the responsibility of the, of the, on the crimes. Were the ones who gave the orders, were the ones who followed the orders. So in order to do that, we also record the uh, rank of the, of the officers, from the highest to the lowest ranks. And here we recorded the, the ranks from all the different armed forces and security forces. Some of them are similar and some are not. A difficult uh, aspect to, to fulfill with this record was to actually know which role each defendant had in, in the cases they are involved. For example, he could be a general of the army but he was the chief of an army school. Was he, I don't know, a guard in a clandestine detention center? That has been, we, we tried to do that at first. And well, in a moment, there was a priority to map the prosecutorial status and well. We could, this is, this is data that has some bias. Um, not very complete, but we are trying to develop a more accurate record on what they did at the moment they are they were part of a crime. 
Well, and this is, this is the part of the database in which we focus, basically. Because for each defendant, we, we want to know what I have called in several times the prosecutorial career. I mean, we want to know in which part of the investigation they are actually in. And as I told you before, Argentina has this mixed system and it has a first part when you have to prosecute and a second part when you have to, uh, to sentence, to convict or acquit. So here in the variable on situación procesal, that is procedural status, I think, um, we, map the we map the rulings and the verdicts. So here we are able to see if we do, f do frequencies on this particular variable and the SPSS response. Oh, come on, you're, you're making me look bad. Well, I don't know if for, perhaps I need, I need permission for this because I need permission for everything. Well, if it would have uh, worked, you would have seen an Outlook page where you would see how many prosecuted, how many convicted, how many acquitted. But he didn't let me do that. I don't know why. I'm going to try again. Julia, you're, you're appearing here. It's like you're, you're not letting me. I'm not letting you. Okay, don't worry, don't worry, it's okay. Well, technology is not on my side today. Well, but for you to know, that's the variable we actually take care most about because we are mapping verdicts and rulings, I mean, every day, or I don't know if every day, but every week there's a ruling in Argentina. So it's really reactive. We really need to be uh, looking at every, every single source we handle in order to get that information. Oh no! Okay. Um, basically, we analyze the procedural status in relation to a case. There, it appears like a generic name of the case. For example, the picture I showed you before belongs to this case, what we call the ESMA accumulation, with lots of files regarding ESMA. But, um, for example, now, this is a trial that's currently going on in Tucumán, La Mega Causa, Arsenal y Jefatura. And, as you could see, for example, this man, whose name is Acosta de Barraza, it's not a man, it's a, it's a girl. Acosta de Barraza Maria Luisa, she's a police officer from Tucumán, she's currently prosecuted in this case, and that case is in Tucumán, it's a province in Argentina, and she's currently on trial. We can see if a person is prosecuted but it's not still on a trial, and when a person is it's on a trial, it's a big difference. There was a moment in, in when we started with this database that perhaps people were prosecuted, but it took years to get to trial. 
So it was very important for us to start measuring what would, ha would happen with these prosecutions. Are they actually going to trial or they're prosecuted and then forget in a file? Yes? Okay. As you can see, there are many variables on cases. That's why in Argentina, there are many, many defendants that are prosecuted in several cases, not only in one. Uh, there is a very famous perpetrator whose name is Luciano Menendez, who was a celebrity also in, in the north of our country. He, I, I believe, I think he has like 10 or 12 convictions. He's the star of the convictions in Argentina. Well, because he was a very important chief, uh, army chief, who, had a, who was in charge of a very wide t uh, territory in Argentina, so that's why he's prosecuted all over the country. Yes? And finally, I wanted to just let you know that we also to take care on the fact if they are imprisoned or free. And if they are in prison, we also measure if they are in a penitentiary unit or if they are in house arrest <coughs> or if uh, they are, well, Actually, currently it's not a big deal, but in the beginning of the process, I told you about this man who died in his cell. He was in a military unit. That was, uh, that was a moment very hard at the beginning in Argentina when, well, of course, the military were, were held captive, but they were, uh, they were placed in the same, perhaps in the same military unit that where they used to work. So they were in custody of the of lower ranks. So the, his or her guards used to treat, treat the, these military with a lot of respect because they were their superiors. And at the same time, there were well, people who were being investigated for committing crimes. So it was quite difficult at that moment. Now it's not an issue. So we are not focusing on at that moment in the project, we are not that focused on this part of the database, on the database, but of course we, we handle that, that variable because it, we think it's rather important. Well, and I wanted to show you just, this is the, the least beautiful of our databases because it's, it's quite, has a lot of information. But in a moment, after we started measuring the perpetrators, we started to see that there was a very interesting phenomenon in the process. Remember when I told you these trickle-down prosecutions, that this phenomenon of each judge investigating one victim separate from the other? When? Well, there was a moment when the general attorney's office decided to create a unit to help or to coordinate the prosecutors all over the country to, uh, well, to organize these trials. After that, this, this unit from general attorneys started to work very hard, and we consulted on them a lot, to accumulate the cases. So her case and her case that were separate, they were, they were being investigated separate. Well, this unit started to work in order to put them together in the same case. And that was the phenomenon of accumulation. So perhaps we had 200 cases in one, uh, for one judge, and now we have two cases. 
that was really interesting, and we thought that it it it, it was worth it was worthwhile um, to measure that. So we started to map each case, and we started to see if they were a main file. Sorry, a main file of if it was accumulated. Oh, here it is. Um, so we started to map each case according to the territory, the, the, the jurisdiction. Here is the province of Buenos Aires, that has many cases. The Buenos Aires City, well, Catamarca, Córdoba, Chubut, Chaco, these are all the provinces in Argentina that has tri tri actual trials. We at first only looked at in which state they are. Are these in the investigation phase? Are they on trial? Are they just, they have already a sentence? We are also mapping that. And after this, this process started to accumulate, we're starting to measure which one of them was accumulated to others. That's why, why, why is that? Because otherwise, in our, when they reach to trials, we could say that there were 200 cases on trials, but actually, no, there were only one. So if we didn't care about the accumulation strategy, we would be inflating the data. Oh, Argentina has thousands of trials, and in fact, it will be just, I don't know, five. See? OK. And the last one, I don't want to. I, know I sound too excited about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm like a nerd of the databases. The last one is about th that census of, of, of people convicted that I told you about. So <coughs> it's also organized by perpetrator, but these perpetrators have been convicted. We have, well, I'm going to show you the graphics, but we have 416 perpetrators convicted in Argentina today. So here we also record the case in which the perpetrator was convicted, the year of the conviction, the sentence. We're gonna we're gonna see graphics about it. The crimes for which it was charged, and the kind of responsibility he had. Was he the author? Was he a co-author? Was he the intellectual author? So it was important for us to measure that. And of course, it shows us, it's also very hard to see, but there are many, many crimes. Delito uno, delito dos, crime one, crime two, crime three, crime four, crime six. Like, I think there are seven, eight. Eight crimes, it's the most crimes that a single verdict has had. So this database also shows you that. Okay. Enough with the barrels. Let's see some. Let's see some findings. What we have discovered with these projects. Well, this is the evolution of the trials in Argentina. We started measuring 2006 because the first trial occurred that year. As you can see, we have a very and not very decent beginning. But then we started having more trials per year. This really has to do with the action of the, the unit from the prosecutor's office and how the trials were beginning to organize 
uh, some years after it, it started. Um, so well. Sorry, ongoing trials or close? Finished trials. Okay. These are the ones that have a red. They are. They have sentence. Okay. So they are finished. The ongoing trials. I have another. Another graphic to show you. So, in 2013, we already had 15 sentences, and there are still many. Like I think, like 14 or 15 other trials. So perhaps we could end 2013 with more trials than in 2012, but we don't think so. I think we are beginning to have this pattern, but too, too early to say. Let's think. Um, something that you have to understand is that these trials, they were not mega cases. They were not, the, 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 pheno the phenomena of accumulation was not at the beginning of the process. When we are starting to have more trials, even though they are more, they are more, com more complex too. So I say, I say, yes, I think that from 2010 until today, we have more trials, and these trials are uh, more complex. They have more victims, more perpetrators. So I think it has to do that perhaps the judiciary is, uh, well, there have been many mechanisms designed in order to improve how to handle with the trials. And of course, we, the NGOs, had a lot to do with that. But also the state, well, they, they managed to handle the complexity of these cases in a, in a better way. Um, this is like almost the same chart, but thinking about not not uh, not cases, not finished trials, but the defendants that were convicted or acquitted in the framework of those trials. So, as I said, from 2010, the, the as you can see, the the graphic reflects that there are more per there are oh, there are more trials, but also more perpetrators convicted or acquitted <coughs> in each trial. This is very important. In Argentina, we have acquittals, of course, because it's a process of justice, criminal justice. If you cannot prove the relation of a person to the crime, you get an acquittal. So this also proves how this is a process that is working like any other, but well, for crimes against humanity. So well, uh, we have reached a point where we have more than 400 people convicted and 35 of them, uh, 30, 35 others that have been acquitted. Um, however, these defendants are only the 23% of all the universe of perpetrators who are actually alive and can be judged. So it's a very small percent. That, that means we still have a lot to do. Here, I told you we could map the crimes committed and the sentence that was given to the perpetrators who had been convicted. Mostly, the process is focused on, we don't have enforced disappearance if our, in our criminal code. We, I think we call like illegal deprivation of liberty, something, because we are judging these perpetrators with our own criminal code. We are not using international crimes. But these crimes are considered crimes against humanity, so they have no status of limitation. So basically, they, are, they have been charged for, well, yes, disappearance, torture, and murder. We are eventually, and more and more, prosecuting 
people for sexual crimes. But it's a quite recent phenomenon in Argentina. Uh, we have also children abduction because, as you know, in Argentina there was a very sad but systematic practice of kidnapping women who were pregnant and after giving birth they were usually killed and their babies were, were kidnapped. And well, other crimes that are not that important, but we should see that some perpetrators are also convicted for robbery. So they used to take the property of the people they used to kidnap. And regarding the sentences, as you can see, almost the half of them are convicted to life imprisonment. This has to do with the amount of crime, well, the, the maximum. The maximum. The, the maximum about, about, uh, amount of the sentence of murder and for disappear, these are crimes who have very high sentences. And also with the amount of cases, if we have a case where there are, I don't know, 200 victims and you are convicted for murder of 100 or for disappearance of 200, of course the, the sentence is going to be high. Well, this is what, what you were asking. This is the universe of cases in Argentina. Active cases, we mean the cases that are together on in the, in the, in the judiciary, I mean, under investigation. 26% they are sentences, they are final. We have, well, 14 ongoing trials and written procedures, the ones that are all written but they are residual. Some of them have been of indictment. They are ready to trial. There are 64 cases that are ready to trial, but they cannot start for lots of reasons. Sometimes because, they, for example, there is no room to do the trial, or because the tribunal, the court, is busy with another trial, so there are others waiting. And an amazing amount of more than 200 cases are still under investigation. So although we have a lot of a lot of sentences and many trials going on. We still have a lot of, of them that well, have been delayed to, to reach trial. So the judgment is also extending. We are now, as I told you, looking for civilian liability. We're trying to investigate gender crimes. So time passes and we're, these trials are, are still going on. And in a very interesting phenomenon, the universe of perpetrators doesn't stop from growing. So between 2012 and 2013, there are almost 300 more perpetrators that have been identified. The, these were new, uh, these are new, new, of course they are not new, but they were not known until last year, for example. So they, they, they arouse a lot of questions, but they always ask me when I travel abroad, oh, how long are these trials going on? Well, still, we don't know. We, we believe that there are many, many more years. But at, at any extent, I love this phrase. I say it everywhere. I think there's going to be a biological full stop. Because, of course, they are dying. They are, many of them are over 80 years or 70 years old. The perpetrators, the victims, the witnesses. Well, and so I'm not going to go deep on this because there are no my statistics. I don't know them very well, but well, 
just to show you that the other databases, the one from Chile, from Peru, and for, from uh, Uruguay, they also are doing this. They are also doing their own statistics. They are measuring the cases. This is, these are the statistics from the Diego Portales University in Chile. They are mapping the open cases. They are mapping, for example, the difference between the cases that refer to enforced disappearance and the ones that are for torture. So see the difference, a very, a very small amount of cases relate to torture in, in Chile. And regarding agents, well, they, they do it in a very complex way, but they are mapping basically if they are in jail or not. Because in Chile, the phenomenon is that, for example, a person is convicted, but he's convicted to three years, so he goes home. And this is something very, very interesting in, in the Chilean case. In the case of Peru, of Peru they are also mapping, they are mapping the rulings as we are. They have less amount of rulings. But the interesting point is that the acquittals are more in Peru than in, than in Argentina. The, the, I'm almost done. This is the last one. And the um, amount of perpetrators who have been acquitted is also higher in Peru. And in Uruguay, the observatory, they are only mapping cases for now. They are not mapping perpetrators yet. Hope they are doing it anytime soon. But as you can see, in Uruguay, most of the, the cases are in a very preliminary phase. So only, only three cases have reached sentence. OK. Thank you so much. For